look around and you see a, a world pretty much in chaos, I mean, wars, regional wars everywhere between different religions. And, and then there's, there's hate crimes based on race and political differences. And you look around and you say, geez, not much love in the world that I can see. However, we get a chance to step back from that every February and celebrate that uh, the one day when everybody uh, should be reminded of the most important thing in your life, which is the people you love. Uh, and from a musical perspective, I was thinking, you know, there's that one song that has that uh, Richard Rogers, Rogers and Hart wrote uh, for uh, for one of their their uh, theatrical productions and that has uh, endured. In fact, I saw that it has been recorded over 1,300 times by more than 600 artists. And uh, you can't drop a name of a great vocalist who probably has not recorded My Funny Valentine. Yeah, um, you know, musicians, many musicians like to uh, criticize this song. They don't like it. I think it's one of Richard Rodgers' very best songs. Um, it's It's got a, a particularly, the lyrics are particularly a good representation of, of Larry Hart, Lorenzo Hart's writing. Larry, as his friends called him. Um, it's a great song. You know, it's funny, your introduction about it. I actually know a lot about the song because I'm so fond of it. Um, what you're talking about, because the musical it's from, which is uh, late 30s, like 36 or 37, it's called Babes in Arms, um, which I think Richard Rodgers' three biggest hits come from that show. Funny Valentine being one, Where Wind being another one, and The Lady is a Tramp. There, there's two or three other songs in there that were also very popular. But that that musical has been radically changed from its original version of it. First of all, in the musical, uh, the person singing My Funny Valentine is a woman singing to a not-so-attractive male about, you know, it's not really a flattering song right at first. You know, I remember the, the first time I, I was performing in Athens, Greece, and, and walking around and seeing all the the beautiful paintings and statues and actual beautiful women. We all were giggling, laughing about because we remembered this line from my funny Valentine. One of the words is, is your figure less than Greek? Which, you know, I didn't, growing up, I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. But you're there and you see, you know, all these voluptuous women and statues and paintings, et cetera. But actually in, in the, in the musical, she's talking about his figure, mm-hmm. you know, not, not looking like Adonis, you know, not looking like a, a Greek statue of male perfection. Um, it, it's, it's got all these little things lyrically about it, but if you put it into the backdrop of what the musical was, which, which is interesting because it was written at a time where, I think it was even booked, billed originally as a musical comedy, but it's actually discusses a whole bunch of political themes in it, in particular communism, work camps, 
gender identity and racism <laughs> in, in the late 30s. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the, the premise of the whole thing, which I've never got to see the original, like the, when it was reproduced and made to a movie, they completely sanitized of anything remotely political. But originally what they're talking about is these, these kids, their parents go up, their, their parents are vaudeville uh, performers, and their parents leave for six months and just leave the kids at home. And there's some kind of love interest between the sheriff and and like a love triangle. And so he decides to try to send all these kids off to a workers camp. And they put on a musical to try to raise money so that they don't have to be sent off to the, you know, to the gulag, basically, <laughs> you know. There's two African-American youths in the troupe who are the victim of racism from the locals. It's all set in, I think, Long Island. Maybe it's New Jersey. It's it's up, you know, northeast. But um, in the middle of it, the, the the girl character is in love with this this male character who's who's short and not so great looking uh, and sings this this love song to him. You know, that was that was Mitzi Green, right? The uh, actress, and that was I, I don't of, remember. I'm going to trust yeah. you if, I, if it's you and your Wikipedia. I'm going to trust yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, that's what I I found, and it was like the beginning of her career, her first, uh, and she became, uh, you know, somewhat of a star. I remember that in the movie version. Who was that? The child actor. He he was around the same time as Judy Garland. I can never remember his name. Not Mickey. Um, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney yeah. plays the love interest in the movie. Oh wow! I did not know that. Not being, <laughs> not being, you know, he fits the lyrics of the song. Yeah, you know? his figure is less than Greek. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it starts off. It, it, she literally says that your looks are laughable. Yeah, unphotographable. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, but I mean, the whole thing is great. It it. There's so much about the song that that is, I mean, just just historically. But I can understand why musicians might hate it because it's such a good song that has a really melodically the lyrics are interesting, um, and it's got an arc where like the highest the drama note is towards the end of the song. You kind of have that golden mean area, you know two-thirds, three-fourths towards the end is where you get the highest note of the song. And Richard Rodgers spends a lot of time building up to the note. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I can see why singers love this song because they get to milk it and say interesting lyrics and stuff. And because of this, um, if you're a working jazz musician doing jam sessions and playing with you, you do get confronted with a lot of singers who are far more interested in theatrics than just musicality. Um, you know, it's a cliche thing. I can't tell you how many times a singer has come up to a jam session and said to the band, listen, I want to do my funny Valentine, but I want to do it a way no one's ever done it before. <laughs> Let's do it over a funk groove. <laughs> and of course, we've been asked to do that, I don't know, a thousand times. Um, Doesn't seem to fit. I mean, it works, but it's definitely not a new, fresh approach. It's kind of like the most obvious thing. There's a, um, 
there's a Grover Washington, um, the, the saxophone is a, a kind of a smooth jazz song called Mr. Magic that has a like funky groove on it and it's on the same kind of chords. So they're, they're always like asking us, can we do it like it's Mr. Magic? There's a lot of, I take a lot of pleasure in the irony that one of the very most famous versions of this song is by a person who's not typically thought of as a singer's singer. Like no one's going to talk about this person's amazing vocal technique and dynamic range and amazing use of vibrato and all this stuff. It's the great jazz trumpet player, Chet Baker. Right. And his version of this is so famous that it's been, it's been put in the library of Congress as some kind of landmark for jazz recordings. You know, when I was thinking about this yesterday, I, I pulled his version of that back up and it is an incredible recording and, uh, Great singing. Great singing. I mean, he sings it with such feeling. Like yeah. you, could, you could you know, he was performing early in his life when he was unbelievably handsome and, and would sing it almost ironically, but he sang it late in life too, and so almost more poignant because he's his drug abuse and everything had, had aged him way beyond his his years. Uh, I mean, it's great stuff. I, you know, I learned the song first from from um, Miles Davis playing it on an album called My Funny Valentine, nineteen sixty four. He recorded it earlier on um, on um, nineteen fifty six. It's one of those four: cooking, working, relaxing, steamy. He released these four records, re- recorded them all in one weekend. This is one of it. it's on there too, but this. This version from 1964 with Herbie Hancock on piano is is so slow and beautiful and heartbreaking, really, in many ways. But then, you know, there's all the, the great singers have performed this song. Yeah. And the ones who do it well, well, all the greats do it well. They all, it it's something about the song really lends itself to having a really deep level of interpretation to it. And I think it's because of how well the song is written. Uh, and I know it's, listen, the song is simple, but brilliant in its simplicity. The, the tiny little things that Richard Rogers does that, that, that don't happen in songs very often. You, you might, you might, if I, I wish I had a piano here. I'll just, I'll just point out a couple of unique things it does. First of all, it's got, this one section, we call it the A section. It's the, it's the first eight bars of the song. The melody of that is never repeated exactly the same way. The second time you do it, it's it's higher in the key, mm-hmm. you know, so that you're already experiencing this sense of lift. Mm-hmm. And then you have a bridge, which I'll come back to that. And when you come back to this section for the, you know, the end of the song, it starts low, then it goes a little higher, and then it goes up to the highest point so that you get this 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 really beautiful note at the end that's held out. It's kind of the note, you know, we call it the butter note. It's where, like, the band, everything pauses. There's a fermata, and, like, the spotlight comes down and hovers over the singer, as they say, like, the most, the saddest word or the most poignant word of the song. You know, it's that kind of thing. But this idea of spending almost the entire song moving up to this pitch 
most people would just do it within one section. He plays with it through the whole thing. It's I, I really don't know another song that does that. Mm. Nothing, nothing complicated about the melody, but this slow having the the thought to wait all the way to the end for it to reach this point is is pretty unusual to me. The other thing that's that's cool is that you know it doesn't actually ever have play the main chord, the 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 key chord, the tonic mm-hmm. one chord, the the key that the song did. It doesn't even reach that until the bridge. Right. Which is again is kind of like this foreshadowing and stuff. It's um I, I think there's this is one of the reasons that that people like performing this song so much. And I don't think you need to know anything about it as a listener to experience this drama unfold that's timed out perfectly in the song. I guess that drama of it is is part of what has made it so popular among the all the great singers. I mean, everybody from Sinatra to Michael Bublé to Sarah Vaughan has recorded. And, and the fact that more than 600 artists have recorded it and more than 1,300 recordings, it tells you that the same artist is recording this more more frequently than once. <laughs> yeah, you know, I always wonder, though, I, I think it's a great song. I, obviously, I do. But I always wonder how much of its fame is also related to it being able to be tied to a holiday. Uh, to, to be clear, in the in the musical, it's not on Valentine's Day. It's the, 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 the guy that she's singing to, his name is Valentine. Some weird last name. I think it's like Valentine Lamar. Or so it sounds like two first names to me, but um, you know he goes by Val, um, and every day is Valentine's Day. I'm not even sure they're talking about the holiday. I think uh-huh. she just means it's his day every day, but because uh, I don't know when that holiday started. For all I know, it was created by Hallmark and Russell Stover's Chocolates. <laughs> I, you know, there's a there's a book about jazz standards by one of my favorite authors. This guy named Ted Goya. He is a great writer and a great musician, but he doesn't like the song. <laughs> and and the thing I like the the most about it is this waiting until the bridge to get the key. He thinks it's the most obvious and trite thing ever. So you know, I don't know. All I all I know is how the song has affected me. I love playing it, and obviously, jazz musicians love playing. It. There's a, there's this uh, an unusual version that's pretty famous. That's um, the pianist Bill Evans and the guitarist Jim Hall playing together, just the two of them. And they don't even play it as a ballad. They swing it like it's a almost like it's a jumping song. It's uh, oh, it's great. It's, it's, you know, the harmony is perfect for that, too. You don't get any of the sense of, of you know, of the of the, you know, don't change your hair for me and all that stuff that's in, in the lyric. And yet. It kind of shows what a great song it is that can be adapted to so many things. 